So we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 today for the most part, but I do, let's see, I do need to warn you guys, we're going to cover a subject that we would call, I don't know, PG-13 maybe? Parents strongly caution. There's some scandalous stuff that happens in the Bible, and in order to kind of fill you in on what's going on in Corinth, I got to fill you in on what happened there and with a particular man. And so if you have children, now would be a good time to use the children's ministry or the youth ministry. If not, you may have some explaining to do after service. So one of the things, you know, as Pastor Bill teaches, it's, it's awfully intimidating teaching after him because I consider him like a heavyweight in the game. And... The one thing I will say is that I'm fully confident that Pastor Bill is a better teacher than I am. But he doesn't have a better message than I do. (laughs) And I got that from Charles Spurgeon's dad. We preach Christ and him crucified. And so today I hope you came with the expectations not to necessarily hear Bill, but to meet with the Lord. Because we know that where two or three are gathered, he is there. And so we are confident that God is here with us. And he promised us to send the comfort of the Holy Spirit to convict the world and to glorify Jesus. And so we know that God is here with us today and what a tremendous privilege it is to sit at his feet, that he wants to speak to us, to have a relationship with us. That is a tremendous opportunity we have. What a blessing that is. I understand if the Raiders are playing, it makes it harder to come on Sunday. I get it. If the Niners are playing, it's like, eh, nobody's... (laughs) Lord, we come before you and we praise you because you're worthy, because you are good. We thank you that you've called us to you. We thank you that it's your work in our lives, Lord, and we praise you for giving you, giving us your word. I pray that you would speak, that you would send the comforter. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're actually, if you will, bump back a few verses in the chapter 1, verse 23 because the thought kind of continues off of what Bill had taught last week. In order to understand what's going on here, we need a little bit of history, and Pastor Bill explained most of it. So I'll just go into it briefly, but understand that this, this kind of process, this, what was going on in Corinth happened over years. This wasn't a few text messages, a correction in a meeting. This was two to three year long process. Paul established a church in Corinth, and he stayed there for 18 months. He departed for Jerusalem and then went to Ephesus. Upon arriving in Ephesus, he began receiving bad reports, things that were going on in Corinth. And a side subject, food for thought, I was thinking about this this morning. Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years and in Corinth for 18 months. Perhaps he realized he didn't stay in Corinth long enough? I don't know. But either way, he receives bad reports He had already written to them once, a letter that we don't have. It's called by scholars a previous letter, and it's lost. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is, in fact, the second letter that Paul wrote. In the second letter, he addresses some of the reports that he's gotten. And they had also, in that time, written him a letter, asking him questions on various subjects. So 1 Corinthians is him addressing the sin that was in the camp within the church. 
and then also addressing their questions. And you have to understand what the city of Corinth was. There's actually a coin, a, a phrase coined because of them. For people who lived and who were led by fornication, they would say, the people in that area, in the Roman Empire, would say, you've been Corinthianized. And that wasn't Christian people saying this about the city of Corinth. That was non-Christians. These guys had a reputation. This was an extremely carnal area, and Bill taught on that last week, and if you look into their history, just full of debauchery. So you've been Corinthianized, man. You've been, you, you lead a life led by fornication. And this was the area that Paul established this church. And so they were surrounded by such a great temptation, and it began to leak its way into the church. And so Paul writes to establish correction. Hey, you guys, the things that are going on, this is absurd. It shouldn't happen in a church. It's not even named among the Gentiles. Even the non-Christians don't even do this. You guys are crossing lines. And it wasn't well received. And then, and we'll dig into this a little bit as we teach because it hints towards it, Paul writes a third letter. So the previous letter, named by scholars, they call it the previous letter, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I previously wrote to you, that letter's lost. Then he writes 1 Corinthians. And then many scholars believe, because the text that we're going to cover today and other evidence that we have, that he visited them again, and they call that the painful visit. Essentially, Paul came and dropped the hammer on them. And then when he departed, he wrote the severe letter, a letter that we don't have, where he was repeating what he had done, the work that he had done while he was there, calling them out, calling for them to repent. He had sent Timothy in this time, and it doesn't tell us what happened, but apparently when Timothy got there, it didn't really go very well. And so he sends Titus with a severe letter. And this letter was to the extent... Most scholars believe that he was calling on them to repent or that they would break fellowship. This is a church, these are people that he poured his life out for and over the course of two or three years they had written back and forth and they were at their wit's end with each other. And so when we read, let's start in verse 23 of chapter 1, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So the language there is severe. And some scholars believe that he's saying, if I'm lying about this, may my soul be condemned. Now there's some language, there's some leeway in there. But what he's saying is, I didn't come again because I wanted to spare you. I didn't want to continue this back and forth of us just going at each other. There was no fruit in it anymore. He had said what it needed to be said, and to come again and to bring the hammer again, there would be no profit. And so he said, I, I did this to spare you guys, not because I'm a flake, not because I don't stand by my word, but I didn't want to do any harm. There wasn't any profit for me to come again. And so he says in verse 24, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. So essentially, I'm, I didn't come down on you guys as I'm up here and you're down here, but we're fellow workers. And so for the first chapter and part of chapter 2 that we're going to read today, he's not so much giving a defense as he has laid a foundation 
to continue to offer correction and to continue to hammer away at them would have been perhaps a disaster. It would have caused them to, hey man, you know what? All this guy does is write negative things to us. That's all he has to say. And so he wrote to him in chapter 1, I'm proud of you guys. We're fellow workers. I'm here to come alongside you. I don't want to do harm to you. I didn't come again because I wanted to spare you. So he's laying that foundation of love because what he's about to do is offer another correction. But before he offers that correction, he needs them to understand how much he loves them. Chapter 2, verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. And so there's a hint of the painful visit. Because we know the first time he was there, he established a church. It wasn't a painful visit. And so scholars point to this as proof that Paul went back for a second trip. Now, it's not in the book of Acts at all, and it can be debated, and if you believe, hey, he didn't do that, it's totally acceptable. Verse 2, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So verse 3 is a hint to the severe letter. I wrote this to you guys so that when I came back, when I would come back, that we could have joy together, that it wouldn't have to be more correction, more contention, that we wouldn't have issues between us. So I wrote you that severe letter to reestablish our love between each other, to reestablish our fellowship. Because the last thing Paul wanted to do was to break fellowship. These were essentially his children. He was their spiritual father. And as it is with correction, it's never really that great to receive it. And the smallest things are in the largest things. It always stings a little bit. And so what we see from Paul in the first chapter, in this part of this chapter, is he wants them to know where he's coming from. I love you. I am here to come alongside you. He's reaffirming his relationship with them, that he is for them and not against them. And so perhaps it's wise when we offer correction in people's life to first have established a loving relationship with them. Pastor Bill told me when I was at Refuge, when I'm meeting with him, he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I believe he was quoting somebody, but it kind of struck me as odd because while Petey was there, Petey is probably the loving... I mean, that guy loved everybody. He was easy to get along with, and he was just a joy. I'm not that guy. So when we would go to counseling sessions, Petey would call me up, and it was part of his discipleship with me. He'd come with me. We didn't meet with these people. And sometimes he would be correcting a sin or trying to speak into their life. And essentially my job became, I realized that I was the hammer. When the meeting kind of got sideways and they started making accusations against PD or just kind of fighting back, then I would step in, and that's kind of what I did. But when he passed away, that was still the only thing I was really good at because I naturally do that, and it wasn't profitable anymore. I needed to establish with the people there how much I love them. So that, in essence, what I'm gathering from the first chapter and the portion of chapter 2 is that takes precedence. Before you offer correction that people understand and know that you're for them and not against them. Otherwise, it'll be ill-received, potentially ignored. Oh, this guy's only doing this because he hates me. 
And on the flip side of that, when you're offered correction, understand that God corrects those he loves. Even if it's from an enemy, perhaps they are right. And what does God want to speak to you when somebody offers correction into your life? Why are they attempting to correct? Why are they saying these things to me? What does this mean? How can this impact my life? You take what is your, you've heard and you go before the Lord. And that takes a certain amount of maturity. Because it's easy to blow somebody off when they've offered correction in your life or a rebuke and say, that guy doesn't even care about me. That guy's a jerk. I don't like him. But I equate it to the old football coach. If you guys played sports, you know. The problem isn't when the coach is yelling at you. The issue is when he stops. When the coach stops correcting you, it's because he gave up on you. If you make a mistake on the field and you walk by your coach and he says nothing, that's a problem. Because he doesn't think you have any more to offer. If you do something wrong in the field and your coach lays into you, it's because he knows you can do better. And so in that way, when somebody offers correction in our life, we need to understand that usually it comes from love. So establish before you correct somebody. It may help them understand that you are there for them. And then when being corrected, understand that it usually is coming from a place of love. And even if it's not, what does God have to say to you in that correction? And so Paul has spent the majority of this first chapter and second chapter not in defense, not backpedaling, not going backwards, but laying a foundation of, hey, I didn't come again because I love you. I didn't want to have issues with you guys again. I wanted to have joy when I would visit Corinth again. Now let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just to your left there a little bit. And if you have children, this is where I'd recommend plugging their ears a little bit. Verse 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as, not, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with this spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And it got real. What Paul is telling them to do is to kick this man out of the church. And he's shocked that they're puffed up about it. They've been bragging about it. Look how loving and caring we are. Even this guy that took his stepmom into his house. We've even allowed that guy in the church. We're just a loving church. But is it love to offer no correction, to let him live in sin? Absolutely not. Certainly where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
And then Paul goes on to say in Romans, what then? Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. They've allowed sin in their camp and not just allowed it, but bragged about it. And so what he's commanding them to do, kick him out of the church. And just so you're aware, this is Paul, a Christian, writing to a group of Christians about another Christian. This isn't, hey, these type of people aren't welcome in your church. Don't let these people in the doors. This is a man who has professed Christ and is now living in continual sin. And Matthew 18 lays out church discipline that we're to go to the brother and then bring a witness. And then, if the issue persists and the sin isn't repented of, to take him before the church and kick him out. Now understand that that's a very serious thing. If somebody says something rude to you or blows you off or offends you in the slightest way, that is not a call to kick somebody out of the church. Proverbs says it's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. Can you overlook that transgression? Can you just move forward? Understand that even if somebody wrongs you, if you can't overlook the transgression and you take it to somebody else, the idea isn't to gossip or slander. What you are doing is taking a step to have this person removed from your fellowship. Otherwise, you keep it to yourself. Not to cover up each other's sins, not to hide sin, but we don't slander each other. We are known for our love for one another. So the minute you repeat an offense to somebody else, the idea is you're taking a step to have somebody removed from the fellowship. Is that how serious the issue is? For them, absolutely. But it's not a call to gossip. Well, I'm supposed to bring somebody else with me to correct them. So you want them removed from the church. That's where you're going with this. Is that offense big enough? Can you overlook it? The glory of a wise man to do so. But here in this case, absolutely. They had faltered. And thinking they were doing something right, they bragged about it, and then Paul brings their world crashing down. Paul was familiar with that himself. Persecuting the church... He would meet Jesus and his world would come crashing down upon him. He knew exactly what that felt, to think he was doing something right and to find out you've been in sin. And so was the church in Corinth. And you have to understand that this letter, 1 Corinthians, wasn't just written for the Corinthians. Initially, yes. But it would also be read in other churches. The Colossians read this. Romans those guys read it. In Rome, the churches would pass around the letters that Paul wrote to them. And so everybody was aware. And that cannot feel good. That cannot feel great. Oh, cool, so every church is going to read about this, what this man did to him, and notice the protection from the sin, for the sinner, for the guy who transgressed. His name's never mentioned. Paul doesn't say, kick this man out of the church. He offers protection. He doesn't even name him. Sure, the Corinthians knew who he was, but the Colossians would have no idea. The Ephesians would have no idea. Some people in the church in Corinth would have no idea. He's offering protection even 
in excommunication. Because the heart is, and we read in 1 Corinthians, to restore this man. Not to give him the Heisman and keep him out of the church. Because that's the easy thing to do. Verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. And so what he's telling them, I'm sorry I flipped back for too fast on you guys. So what he's telling them in verse 5 of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, I understand that he hurt you. I understand he did this to you guys. He didn't necessarily do it to Paul, and that's what Paul is saying. He didn't really do this to me. He did it to you, and I understand that he harmed you. I understand that this man who took his father's wife, I understand that he brought reproach to you guys. And so he's established that he loves them and that he's for them, and now he's meeting them right where they're at. I understand that this hurt you. I get it. In a way, he did it to Paul too, but this directly affected the church in Corinth. Because as Paul said, this isn't even done among the Gentiles, guys. You've been Corinthianized. Your church has been Corinthianized. You've accepted this man in, and even the world is shocked at, his, at his, what he's been doing, that he took his father's wife. And he says, I understand Verse 5, I understand that he did this to you. So we see compassion and sympathy. He's meeting them where they're at. I love you and I'm here for you and I understand this sin done against you harmed you. In essence, it's easy for me to sit back here and say, hey, you need to do such and such with this man. But I understand that it's harder for you to do it. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we put into practice the things that we read. And so Paul encourages them in verse 6, this punishment which you inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So they've addressed the sin issue. And as weird and as awkward as that is, we're not better than that man. And so he's addressed it, the church has addressed it, they were obedient to Paul, and now he's calling on them to do something equally tough. That's equally important. You kicked him out and he repented. Now you need to comfort him and restore him. But there's danger there, isn't there? What if he does it again? What if he falls into a different kind of sexual sin? What if he brings reproach to the church again? There's no guarantees. And Paul's commanding them to do the harder thing, essentially. Kicking him out, okay, get out of here, buddy. You're in sin. May the Lord deal with you. And now to take him back, the man who had offended them, the man who had brought reproach to their church. And not just just forgive him, not to say, you know what, it's cool, let's let bygones be bygones. Jesus forgives you, I forgive you. But look at the word comfort. In the Greek, it's paraklesis, or parakleo. And for you Bible scholars, you know that that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside and to strengthen. The word comfort there, it 
doesn't just speak of an emotional embracing and it's cool and let's have a cry session together while that might be necessary, but it means to come alongside and to strengthen. Paul is asking for them to disciple him, to pour their life into this man who had greatly offended him, them. And so we see it's no small thing. It's nothing easy. This guy had brought reproach to their church and now they're being called upon to not just forgive him, but to comfort him, to strengthen him, to disciple him. The word comfort used, we get it from the Latin, it's a compound word, com and fortis, which speaks of fortification or protection. To come alongside to strengthen and protect. To minister to this man who had harmed them greatly. And is that not what Jesus did himself? The example that he gave us with Peter, who denied him three times. Jesus restored him. Certainly dealt with the sin right there on the cross, and then restored Peter, who would make more mistakes and be rebuked by Paul. But it wasn't, we're going to restore you so you can be perfect. The tendency we have sometimes is to protect the organization. An organization that's set out to help people, we start protecting the organization because we're vulnerable in that way. Pastor Bill, in allowing me to teach, is vulnerable in a certain way. I could say anything I want up here. Restoring this man makes them vulnerable. What if? What if he does this again? Then people will say, hey, isn't that the same guy who was sleeping with us and now he's in ministry at your church? And so the world may accuse us of a lot of things, but what they should never be able to say is they don't love each other because that is how they know us, that we love each other. And perhaps this man takes advantage, but the call is, as Paul said, to reaffirm your love. As Jesus did, as Paul gives us that example in the first chapter, he's reaffirming his love. Yes, I came down on you hard, but I love you and I'm proud of you. For this man who committed this sin with his father's life, they came down on him hard. But it doesn't end there. Now they need to forgive him. Not to just forgive him, but to restore him. Not to just restore him, but to disciple him and to protect him the same man who harmed him. Verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So, he's not, you guys took that first step you kick this man out of your church. And he's starting to challenge them again. After he's reaffirmed his love to them, after he's laid the foundation of love and wanting them to prosper, now comes the challenge. I'm putting you guys to the test because he knows this will be hard. Will you be obedient in all things? Will you receive this man back? It's easy to quote a Bible verse flippantly and then to move forward but it's much harder to put this into practice. The call here wasn't to say, yeah, we forgive you, but you stay in the back there. 
The call was to fully embrace them, to make yourself vulnerable, to strengthen, to equip. The church isn't here to teach morals, to make you a better person, so to speak, but to bring you in the right relationship with the Lord. Kicking him out of church was so that he would reestablish the right relationship with the Lord. For those of you, if you're not saved, understand that you are absolutely welcome here no matter what sin you committed, perhaps right outside, on your way here. And maybe you're a Christian today and you think, I've been messing up. And the natural response is, I need to clean up my life before I go to church. I need to stop doing these things before I go to church. To the contrary. Whether you're homosexual and you've had three abortions and you slam heroin, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you walk with Him? And maybe you're a Christian and you're struggling. I backslidden. The people here, Pastor Bill, Vince, the people around you, they're calling is to come alongside you and to strengthen you. And they do. To offer you protection. Notice Paul, I already said it, but he doesn't say his name. We know that the Corinthians allowed this, but we don't know who this guy is. He's offering protection. Verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one of, for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So the idea is Paul establishing his foundation of love with them so that the Corinthians would know he is for them and not against them. The challenge is to restore this man to offer him protection, discipleship, to strengthen him. The danger is, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. If they were to be disobedient and refuse to let this man back in, perhaps the church looks better. But they've been robbed. That word taken advantage of in the Greek speaks of being robbed by some, for something that is rightfully yours. This rightfully belonged to the church. To restore a sinner, to restore a man to the right relationship with God, rightly belongs to the church. And for this man to be restored, to be strengthened, to be comforted, rightly belonged to him. And the danger was that they would let or allow Satan to rob them. We're not the mafia, guys. We don't kill our own when they fail. Or who would be here? Right? Who would be left? If we start picking each other up, if we start cannibalizing, ah, oh, that guy did that, and you know what? I'm sick of it. He needs to get out of here, or I'm out of here. Then we'll look around in five years, and there'll be nobody left. And that's how a church dies. 
allowing sin in the camp and then to correct it. Equally important to receive them back into the fellowship. Equally important. So that we don't rob people of what is rightfully theirs. This man, though he did not deserve it, we see the grace of God in that Paul says, restoration is rightfully his. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and the work of Satan. And we have two choices. To do the work of the Holy Spirit, to allow God to work through us, or to refuse and commit robbery and do the work of the devil. That is the only two choices Paul's giving them here. Today you'll decide whether you'll do the work of the Lord or the work of our enemy. And that's a scary thing. That's a trip. That's a big deal. Do I want to serve the Lord or serve my enemy? Do I want to, Satan is here to steal, kill, and destroy, commit robbery, to take from this man what is rightfully his, comfort, strength, protection, discipleship? Or would I rather risk my reputation, risk my emotional stability, and reach out to this man and potentially be harmed again. The risk is there. They have been hurt by him. He has done damage in the body. But we're called to love one another. Not to love just those who excel, not to love those who are in obedience, to love one another. And when somebody fails, to come alongside and protect and strengthen and equip them as opposed to stomp them out and say, you need to go away. You need to find another church. It's a scary thing. Our act of free will that we can choose to do the work of the Lord or the work of the devil. And that is the only options that Paul is giving him here. For those of you outside the body, understand that Paul isn't speaking to you necessarily right here. For those people that are living in continual sin and who don't know the Lord, the call is to meet him. Everything else that happens is a byproduct of a proper relationship with the Lord. To give spiritual advice to a man who does, or a woman who doesn't know the Lord is a waste of your time. They cannot receive it, nor can they act upon it. First is the establishment of a relationship with the Lord. And then allow the Lord to work on all these other things. The issue is we're stillborn, spiritually dead from birth. There is no other way to restore your right relationship with God than the cross, than to give your life to the Lord Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes in our way, once we've accepted the Lord, as I have done, and many of you have too, we fall into sin. 
And the call is to come back to him. To allow your church to comfort you. To not be ashamed and hide in your room and say, oh, I I just can't go back. It's rightfully yours. Receive it. Receive correction. And it's rightfully yours. Receive restoration. Receive strength. Receive comfort. It's grace upon grace. And understand that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1, and he says, grace and peace to you. He's talking to Christians. The grace for daily living, his sustaining grace. There's saving grace and there's sustaining grace. And we all need both. And Paul's offering this man who sinned against him to sin against his church, he's offering him sustaining grace. You need to come back. At no point when you've repented, when you cry out to the Lord, are you unwelcome at Cornerstone? Is there church discipline? Yep. I've been there. But don't hide in your shame. Receive what's rightfully yours. Go before the Lord and cry out to Him. And receive sustaining grace. And for those of you today who perhaps had a hard heart, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that person anymore. I'm sick of them. Understand you have two choices. And you'll need sustaining grace for that as well. Will I serve the Lord in this day or will I serve my enemy? Those are very... The implication of that, to serve our own enemy. Let it not be named among us at Cornerstone. Let us be known for our love for one another. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you've called us. I pray if there's anyone in here, Father, who feels ashamed, who's lived in sin, that they would confess their sins and come before you and receive comfort and strength, Lord. May you equip us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.